Between the Lines with Andrea Gilligan. This is News Talk. You're welcome along to News Talk's Between the Lines programme with myself, Andrea Gilligan, where we'll be taking a closer look at some of the main stories and areas of interest. My thanks to everyone who got in contact about last week's programme regarding obesity and also physical education in the youth in Ireland today. You can still listen back to the podcast and all of our podcasts on our website at newstalk.com or on the Go Loud app. And as always, you can get in contact with us today by emailing between the lines at newstalk.com or on Twitter at myself at Andrea Gilligan. Well, coming up today, all this week here on News Talk, we've been running our series on the reality of direct provision in Ireland. Everything from the facts, the figures to the human stories behind those indirect provision. You can listen back to many of Barry White's reports still available on our website and on the Go Loud app but today we want to focus on the actual process and how direct provision actually works here in this country. So, so to discuss I'm joined in studio by Liam Thornton. Liam is the uh, Dr Liam Thornton is an assistant professor at the School of Law in UCD. His new project Exploring Direct Provision has made available 20 years of government cabinet papers, departmental policy documents and also high level civil servant clashes on issues to direct provision for asylum seekers in this country. Just Liam, first of all, um, I often find from talking to people about the whole process around direct provision in Ireland that a lot of people don't actually understand that we have an obligation and even an EU obligation here in this country where we have to accommodate and take and make provisions for asylum seekers. Will you just explain what the, the legalities are around that, first of all? What are our obligations in this country? Thanks for having me on, Andrea. I suppose the obligations that we have under European Union law, they've only come about since June of 2018. Prior to June 2018, the system of direct provision, which uses a shorthand for describing the accommodation that asylum seekers may be entitled to, the weekly allowances that asylum seekers are entitled to, the medical treatment asylum seekers will be entitled to. So when we speak about direct provision, we're not solely speaking about just the accommodation aspect, although that's a Mm. fairly essential aspect of it. And prior to us and Ireland agreeing to be bound by European Union law, this whole system wasn't passed by the Oireachtas as legislation. It was made up of and established by secret departmental circulars by email, which was only available and we only know about that through making Freedom of Information Act requests to the Department of Social Protection and the Department of Justice in particular as regards, well, what is the system? How did it emerge? Why did it emerge? What was the legal basis for the system? Can you just enlighten us on that? Because as you mentioned, June 2018, we've had people seeking asylum in this country long before that. So, like, is it just something that Irish government decided many years ago, we're going to do this as our duty, as a good deed? Well, as I suppose listeners can can view a lot of the government documents for themselves on www.exploringdirectprovision.ie and I suppose this all emerged and began to be discussed in 1997 when we had about 2,000 asylum applicants per year at that stage and what kicked off discussion on how do we cater for the needs of asylum seekers? Because prior to direct provision coming into place, asylum seekers were catered for under the general social welfare system. Mm. And a report in the Irish Independent in 1997 sparked off conversations between the then Minister for Social Protection and Minister for Justice, where they were discussing a report in the Irish Independent, which was about the entitlements of asylum seekers within Ireland, the social entitlements to asylum seekers within Ireland, Ireland. conversations moved on relatively quickly where the government looked around, they saw developments in the United Kingdom. There was pressure from the European Union to deny asylum seekers access to general social assistance, social welfare entitlements. So they came up with a system that was based on then a a pilot within the United Kingdom, which we now know as direct provision, which is accommodation and meals provided on a no-choice basis. Mm. You're dispersed to a part of the country without choice. And for between 1998 and 2001, you would have had significant cabinet discussions on on many issues about, well, should it be the state that 
bills and manages direct provision accommodation centres or should it be private contractors? That argument was basically, uh, I suppose, the government said we'll allow private contractors to do that. And so in 1999, tenders were issued and people had to respond to that. It was decided that the rate of payment at the time for adults, which was €19.10, per week, uh, that that would be set at the level of €19.10 because that's what individuals who had significant needs within residential homes and other institutions would be entitled to. So we had this kind of mix of pressure from the European Union, potential changes to the United Kingdom's system for Mm. reception of asylum seekers, which in fact never actually came into full fruition, all combining with the government saying we will allow private industry to run the system of direct provision and we'll allow them get on with it. There was no, at least from the documents available on exploring direct provision, there was no real discussion of, well, what standards should accommodation centres... Okay, so just so we can get our head around this... So there's a a combination, as you mentioned, of reasons as to why initially we started the um, accepting and looking at accommodation and providing for asylum seekers in this country. But as of last year, we have an obligation whereby we have to accommodate a certain number. We now have an exceptionally clear obligation that all persons whose application for protection is accepted by the state must be entitled to accommodation, albeit in no-choice basis in direct provision accommodation centres, entitled to what's called a daily expenses allowance, but as a weekly payment mm. for adults of €38.60, Euro 60, and entitled to education for minors, entitled to access the public health system under the medical card scheme. And that's only been in place since the 30th of June 2018. Okay, do we have a number on the... It can be anyone you mentioned, anybody that seeks asylum or that has their Anybody, yes, because I suppose as well there's other issues of, I suppose, European Union and Irish domestic law, which which also kind of impact upon reception okay. rights for asylum but, seekers. So when you say, just to, to be uh, to be clear, um, Liam, it's only the number of applications that are processed, is that right? Or applications made for asylum. If I arrive in Ireland by whatever means um, and I then lodge my application to look for asylum... It's only when that's processed, is it, that the government have an obligation to provide me with... It's only when you initially apply for asylum, be that at the port or in the Irish Nationality Immigration Service office in Dublin. From then, if you choose, because there's no obligation upon asylum seekers to accept direct provision accommodation uh, although I, I mean that might be a bit of a, a fantasy given that many people will well, not have any say, yeah. what resources would the, What would the other options be? Well, uh, well I mean from figures we have available there's about 11,000 applications currently being processed for asylum so determining does a person meet the legal very strict legal criteria to be recognised as a refugee or a person in need of subsidiary protection so there's about 11,000 of those applications and there's about roughly 7,500 persons who are either within direct provision and of that 7,500, about 1,500 are in the emergency accommodation, i.e. not within direct provision. So we have 11,000 applications that are currently being processed and we have about 7,500 people in direct provision. So where are the other, where's the other 3,000 people Um, that aren't in... Some people will have access to their own resources. Other people will have access to friends, families, or or whatever. No, no, we have to be honest, sorry. That's a much kind of under-researched area within Ireland as to, because that has always been the case. Only about 50 to 70% at any one stage of all asylum applicants would have been within the direct provision system. So there's always been a cohort who did not have to take up the offer of direct provision accommodation. So, but, but could it be the case, though, that perhaps they had family who came ahead of them who've had their applications already processed and are now maybe living in, in their own housing? That's what, I, I suppose, many of us who research in the area of direct provision, that's what we maybe assume. Um, but... 
to be honest, it hasn't been an issue that has been researched significantly. Okay. We've come to, you know, just as yeah. you said, the conclusion, friends, families and other kind of members of their know. own community. Okay. But we don't know. Can I ask, once you, you arrive in Ireland, you lodge your application, as you said, maybe at the port or the airport or maybe the minute that you arrive in this country. But even though your application is being processed, you have then a right automatically to avail of the direct provision system. Even, even though that the, the system may then turn around and say, well, hang on, we're going to decline your application, Andrea Gilligan. In the interim, I can have my bed and board in a direct provision centre and my allowance of 3860. Well, it takes time, I suppose, kind of, you know, under law. Ireland has an obligation, which has been passed by the Oireachtas, uh, and in light of our obligations under European Union and international law, that where an individual claims asylum, that has to be assessed. That will take time. Why? Mm. Because initially you have the administrative stage, whereby the International Protection Office will assess whether you meet the legal criteria for asylum. The current waiting time on... Assessing that claim is 15 months. 15? 15, one so five. A, yeah, about a year and three months. So a year and a few months. Now that's just a median figure, i.e. it may be longer for some individuals, it may be shorter for other individuals, uh, in particular individuals from certain countries mm-hmm. whose applications may be prioritised. Okay. And that's only stage one of the process. If your claim for protection is not... A, is not is, um, is rejected at that stage, at the International Protection Office stage, you then have a right to appeal to the independent International Protection Appeals Tribunal. And then assessing that appeal, which is probably, I think, fair to say, a bit more legalistic than, than the previous assessment, that also may take a further 15 months. So you're talking a system in place that may take 30 months, mm. usually a bit more, it has to be said, to assess an asylum claim. Okay. The reason, I assume, for the length of this assessment is, as you mentioned a few moments ago, this strict criteria. Talk us through that strict criteria, Liam, and what that means. Without going into a... I'd probably need about 24 weeks (laughs) to do that. Um, But without going into too much detail, international protection doesn't necessarily protect against all human rights violations in a person's state of origin. In order to be a refugee... You have to show that you've a well-founded fear of persecution. Persecution doesn't necessarily equate with a human rights violation. Right. Um, it can, but not necessarily. And that persecution must be reason must be for one of several reasons: uh, political opinion, race, religion, nationality, membership of a particular social group, which can encompass the rights of um, transgender individuals, the rights of trade unionists, the rights of, I suppose, the whole LGBT plus community. Um, so you have to prove that one, I have a well-founded fear; two. The type of behaviour that I've been subjected to within my state meets a fairly tight legal definition of persecution. And even if you prove all those things, then that persecution must be for reasons of race, religion, nationality, membership of a particular social group. If you cannot meet all that criteria, then legally speaking, you may not be a refugee. Now, if you are found not to be a refugee then the system for determining whether you're entitled to protection then has to assess may you whether you're entitled mm. to another status known as subsidiary protection. Will you face the death penalty in your country of origin? If you can show you face the death penalty, then you are entitled to subsidiary protection. If you can show that you may be subject to inhuman degrading uh, treatment mm. or torture, then you may be entitled to protection. Or if you can show that you're in some way individually affected in a general war zone, then you may be able to show that you have an entitlement to subsidiary protection. And that broad overview, I've been using terms here which have fairly precise, fairly defined and fairly legalistic meanings beyond, I suppose, how we would commonly use those phrases. So it is a complex process. It does take time. And I I assume that there are certain countries, if somebody says I'm from A or B, that, uh, I mean, that that would automatically nearly meet that criteria more so than others. Would that be right? That's where things, I suppose, get can get complex, can get tricky. 
saying as a matter of kind of generality that certain individuals within certain countries where there is well-known and significant either persecution risk um, or is a war zone and individuals are individually affected within that war zone, there may be a strong case for an individual being able to show that that Mm. she's entitled to some form of protection. But we don't determine... And the Irish legal system, nor does any uh, any uh, Western legal system, determine refugee claims on a group basis. And um, the group basis for determining protection need hasn't been used since the nineteen forties, nineteen fifties. So it can't be a case that Liam Thornton and his family, you know, came in last week and you put in an application and you were granted status and I saw that and now Andrea Gilligan comes along and just automatically because I'm telling the same story as you. It's not as black and white as that. Not at all. It is a complex process that does take time. Now, there are issues with resourcing of both the International Protection Office and the International Protection Appeals Tribunal, which means that the ability for decision makers to make a timely yet fair assessment of whether the individual before me, Andrea Gilligan, Mm. has an entitlement to protection... You know, just in terms yeah. of uh, of administrative process okay. and bureaucracy, it will take time. Should it take the length of time it takes? I, I would not think so. But that goes back to resourcing, yeah, adequate training, resourcing and okay. and a, a myriad of other issues. What about the volume of applications, though? Well, I I mean, the, the uh, let's go to the twenty eighteen figures. That's the final confirmed mm. figures uh, for the whole year of twenty eighteen. Well, there's eleven thousand people in the system. I don't know what stage of the system each of those 11,000 applicants are. Um, so I don't know how many of those are in the International Protect, the first stage, how many are in the second stage with the International mm, Protection okay. Appeals Tribunal. But I mean, let's just take a step back here. And, you know, there's been a lot of discourse, a lot of discussion from various political angles and other angles over the last while. At the end of 2018, Ireland had 3,670 asylum applications. That's 0.57% of total EU asylum applications. Greece, 66,000. Germany, 184,000. France, 120,000. Ireland does not have a huge number of persons seeking asylum. Mm. The reason we're in... And having these discussions on the direct provision system being a breaking point is because the state decided not to plan for what they had been told by various experts was a slight increase. And that's all it is, a slight increase in the numbers of persons seeking protection. Can I go back to a point you made a few moments ago, just when you talked about the fact that we don't have um, group applications do do we have family applications? So if I apply as Andrea Gilligan and I want to come from whatever country and seek asylum in Ireland, do I apply on an individual basis for myself or does that include my partner and um, children? If if they if I get a granted asylum, do they automatically get granted well, asylum? Well, if, say, you came to the country, just you, um, you made an application for protection that was recognised, that was granted to you, well, then you will have an entitlement to apply for family reunification within Mm. 12 months of your grant of protection status. If you arrived with all your family, well, there is a, 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 I suppose, kind of an administrative practice whereby you can decide we we would like our asylum applications to be determined as a family or you could decide, actually, no, I want my asylum application to be determined individually. So that that's how that would work. Okay, but but just because my application has been decided, it doesn't necessarily mean then that my my children can automatically come over. Is that right? Um, it's not an automatic. Well, there's there, there's no entitlement just because you've made an asylum application for children that you may have to enter the state. No, but if it's if it's if it's approved, if it's approved, then you have a right to apply for family reunification. And if your children are under eighteen, and assuming there's no complications then your children will be entitled to join you in the state, but under family reunification rather than within the asylum process. 
We've been carrying out an extensively in um, the realities of direct provision series here on the station throughout the course of the week. And one of our reporters, Barry White, has been, I mean, I think it probably effectively visited every direct provision centre in the country nearly at this stage. I'm, I'm open to correction on that, but he's certainly been around the vast majority of them to see what the reality of life is like in a direct provision centre. And certainly from listening to the reports, you know, a lot of people will say that it's the length of time that they're in the direct provision centre. So, for instance, if I'm in whatever centre I'm in for four months or five months while my application is processed, possibly the country they're leaving, this is a much better situation to be in. You talked about the average being maybe 15 months to have an application processed, and then we hear the stories of people being in direct provision centres for years. So, just talk us through that particular process, and I suppose how many times one can have their application for asylum even rejected? Well, one, the, the 15 months is just for the first stage. You're talking another 15 months for the second stage, if not longer. So you may be talking at a minimum, you know, as of today, two and a half to three years for an asylum claim to be determined. Yes, the issue, and in Barry White's reports, and in reports of within the Irish Times by Sorka Pollock and Jennifer Bray and, and Mark Hamill, a lot of persons within the direct provision system have noted that it is the length of time that they remain in the mm. system, the length of time that they have to somehow live on 38 euro, 60 a week, the length of time whereby for a significant number of people living in direct provision, they do not get a simple choice of what will I eat tonight? It will be provided for you. So, I mean, there's a significant infantilising aspect to direct provision. There's a significant issue about how Ireland responds to not only this issue, but many other issues. It's an immediate institutionalisation response. We see it with family homelessness hubs. We saw it with Madeleine Laundries. We saw it with mother and baby homes. We have always had this institutional impulse to individuals which society, politics, government. But we're not suggesting in any way that the the direct provision centres are the same as some of the... Not the same, but there are the same institutional impulses that institutions are the response to meeting needs of individuals. We're not saying it's the same, but there is a very concerning, you know, long-standing approach within Ireland to people deemed problematic by societies are putting them into institutional settings. Let me just ask you about what we have a right to provide people whether they're waiting for their application to be assessed or whether they've been granted, when they've been granted um, their application, I should say, has been approved, Liam. You talked about the, the bed and board. As a minor, you're entitled to education and also the allowance, as you said, of 30 euros, 60 a week. You can't work during that time while your application has been you, processed. Only since 2018 has an asylum applicant, uh, has a protection applicant been permitted to work. Why did that come about? Because in May 2017, our Supreme Court found Mm -hmm. that subjecting individuals to a system whereby they are awaiting a fair determination of their asylum application, that you cannot expect these people not to enter the workforce, not to enter the labour market. And in the case of the Supreme Court, there was a Burmese Rohingya man who had his application determined several times, kept on having to go to the High Court. Why? Because there was such unfairness at the level of the then International Protection Appeals Tribunal decisions. So he kept on having to be sent back to have a fair determination of his hearing. He was in direct provision for around seven, eight years. And the fact that he was not permitted to work violated his constitutional right to dignity. So only since... 2018 has there been an entitlement to work. That entitlement now is that if you do not have a first instance, the International Protection Office decision within nine months, you will be entitled 
um, to enter into a number of fields of I was employment. Going to ask you that. Yeah, it's not it's it's not just the open labour market. It's within specific areas. Well, not so much within specific areas. Public sector employment is totally excluded. So only within the private sector, the employer has an obligation to first d- determine and seek whether any EU national or other non-EU national but who's here without restrictions on their visa can fulfil the job that the asylum applicant wishes to do. So um, it's only if they can't? Yes. Yes. So so the, 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 the employer will have to show that an EU national um, or, or... With no restrictions. No yeah. restriction national is not available to, to do the job. And then there is such significant administrative... I suppose obligations that an employer who after, you know, ensuring that an asylum applicant has been here nine months, the asylum applicant has gained permission from the from the Department of Justice to enter the labour market. Mm. The employer then has to keep a whole range of documentation on, uh, you know. So it's bureaucratic. It's very bureaucratic. And the asylum applicant has to reapply every six months to Department of Justice to continue to exercise their entitlement to employment. Now, in saying that, if we're comparing Ireland to other European yeah. Union countries, these are not the most restrictive of conditions comparatively. Even though some European Union countries say, oh, well, we permit asylum seekers to access employment within two, three months. When you dig under the surface of that, there's a lot of restrictions within okay. many, many EU countries. Dr. Liam Thornton, Assistant Professor at UCD School of Law. My thanks to you for joining us today. Between the Lines on News Talk. You're welcome back to News Talks Between the Lines programme with myself, Andrea Gilligan. We're discussing the reality of direct provision in Ireland. Everything from the facts and figures to the human stories behind those indirect provision. And you can also listen back to many of Barry White's reports from earlier this week on our Go Loud app. But today, we're continuing our discussion around the actual process and how it works. For more, we're joined in studio by Tanya Ward from the Children's Rights Alliance. Tanya, thanks for joining us today. Um. Talk to us about the impact of the direct provision process um, on young children and in particular, I suppose, the length of time that they actually spend in many of the direct um, provision facilities. I suppose for if you're a young child and you're arriving here with your family, uh, it's very different if you arrive here without your family because some children would arrive here without their families. Um, And often families are housed in Belseskin, which is near Dublin Airport and then they're dispersed to uh, a different location around the country. Um, you know, the state would have uh, contracts with designated mm. uh, centres, old hotels, uh, old B&Bs, old apartment blocks around the country um, and they would allocate you to one, one of these locations. I think for a lot of children when they're arriving, the most important thing for them is about starting school. Because if you talk to any child from the age of three up, they say the first thing they want to do is they want to make friends. Um, and they want to get into school and they want to start their lives again. Uh, and we, we, we would see that being the most important thing for a lot of children here. Uh, and it's obviously probably one of, the, one of the best things about the system in Ireland was that Traditionally, children had no difficulty getting into the local school and the local school and the children at the local school, the teachers really made them feel welcome uh, and at home. Mm. And as we heard as well, Tanya, from Liam earlier on in the programme, mm-hmm. they have a right to access. Children have a right here um, that have co- are coming through the asylum process to That's access right. the right to education. As well. it, it, there's, there's an absolute right to access education for every child in this country including if you're here without documents so if you're a migrant child that happened to arrive here that doesn't have legal status here you still have a right to access school so it's absolutely fundamental big thing that children would tell us about living in direct provision and the experience is very different depending on what centre that you're in right this is the this is the bit the big thing about direct provision some centres are run very well um, some families are in own door accommodation so they might be cooking for themselves they have their own front door they have near enough to a normal family life whereas other children are in institutions where they could be in an overcrowded bedroom with their parents um, and they're being cooked for by a, a centre manager um, and for children living like that they'll tell you that they, they, they very quickly become institutionalised and we see that even with um, some of the homeless accommodation uh, some children experiencing homelessness at the moment would be in very good accommodation facilities uh, let's say family hubs but they are saying in their consultations particularly with the Amazon for Children they're feeling the effects 
effects of institutionalisation. So um, the adults running the institution, having to sign in, um, those adults being in control of their lives and, and not their parents. And they would talk about feeling a bit ashamed living like this and they would try and avoid telling their friends in school that they live in direct provision. And I suppose one of the key things we would like to see um, and it's something that we understand the government is moving towards is, and this is how you move away from direct provision, is that people are in own door accommodation where they can cook for themselves, have a normal family life. A couple of points there. Um, For people seeking asylum in Ireland, a lot of people listening to this, Tanya, might say that, you know, while they're having food cooked for them and not necessarily cooking it themselves and they may not be in their own own door accommodation but that's often the situation here where they are in Ireland is better than than where they left and is that not a starting point? Yeah, I mean, it depends where people are coming from um, and, and certainly people will be coming from some countries where there has been more like Syria or they might be coming from refugee camps like in Greece which where the conditions are absolutely horrendous um, and that, that, is, that is fair to say that conditions are better often here in Ireland but for anyone living in an institution you know, life changes particularly if you're living for a long period of time in an institution and we know from the Ryan report if you remember the Ryan report came out in 2009 and it documented uh, people's lives and children's lives uh, in institutions, in industrial schools. And, and what you find is, is that the people running institutions become very institutionalised themselves um, and, and, and the people living in them become very institutionalised. Mm. So that's why you want to try and move to small settlements yeah. with the and local community so people don't get that feeling of institutionalisation. Okay, and, and a lot of people will agree with that. And I mean, obviously the idea of having your own home um, is more ideal for for family and for child development than 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 being in in um, in this was one large or organised setting. Can I ask one of the the criticisms we've heard this week is more to do with the the length of time that yeah. families are spending in direct provision facilities. A lot of people we've heard from this week throughout our series in direct provision across the station, Tanya. Are, are quite happy and are often, you know, pretty content with the direct provision um, facility that they're in. But it's the length of time. I mean, so, yeah. some families are there, are in facilities for years. Is, is there, I don't want to say an ideal time, but is there a sort of a, a max um, tenure that perhaps, you know, from a child development perspective that groups or organisations, yeah. activists would, would like to see? Well, you know, like you know, six months a year is actually a very long period of time in a child's life. Well, it's a whole school term. It is a whole school term, and things change very rapidly for you as a child. And what you probably want for people when they arrive is that their case is processed as soon as it can be processed. So you want, hopefully, they would have a resolution within a year. And for people seeking protection, they want that. They want to get their, they want to move on. They want to get jobs. They want to get their kids into education. They want to settle. They want to try and forget what happened to them in the past. Um, so putting all the resources, and that's where I think the government needs to, and I, I know they have been, but I think they need to step that up, mm. is getting those cases processed as soon as possible. But one of the challenges we know is that there's a lot of people within the direct provision system that have their status, hundreds of people that actually can't get out because they can't find housing they are prey and victim to the housing crisis just like everyone else because they're trying to use the private rental market Um, so there is a real need to look at alternative locations around the country the smaller towns and cities to help people settle and I know that's something the Department of Justice is doing at the moment looking looking at um, locations and I know they also said as well um, I think just early last week that they will be liaising with or con- consulting with yeah. communities there obviously given what um, some of the commentary in, in, in recent weeks too we heard earlier this week on this station um, it was revealed by Barry White in one particular area where there were children who had been waiting up to two months or they hadn't been receiving education um, yeah. it, for two months and that issue was raised in the doll. and I know the Minister Joe McHugh um, Education Minister said that that's something that they're they're addressing and, and now that situation is, is being revolved, resolved but how long is the sort of the time limit from your own perspective Tanya that you think children should go I mean obviously when they come to Ireland first perhaps their application has been processed with their family I assume it probably takes a couple of weeks I would have thought initially before you'd start education you'd want, you'd want to start school as soon as possible Basically, that is that is the key. Uh, everyone has a right to access education, and I'd be very concerned with any kind of time lag in terms of accessing education. You can imagine 
right, depending on the needs of the child, you can imagine some situations where when you're settling a child into a new school, you might say, okay, we're going to give the child three hours a day for the first two weeks to get them settled into a new school. That That's a different thing. But in a situation where you've got families who are spending spending two, where children are spending two months or more outside the education system that that is of concern to me because and that's a quite a retrograde step because in Ireland it's one of the things that we have done well is we have settled children seeking protection into the school system um, as, as soon as possible and we really have to focus on that because you know for children that's very difficult being in an emergency accommodation scenario where you're not you've no no friends to play with um, you might be in a very small room with your parents um, and you've no future and you see all these other children potentially going off the school and you're, and you're left out and, and you're isolated. Um, and it's a very difficult parenting situation actually for the parents themselves because how are they going to entertain their children during the day if they've got no money, they're, low, they're very isolated where they're, and they're very marginalised themselves and they're dealing with their own trauma because a lot of refugees come to Ireland have been through very difficult circumstances uh, in their own home country, but also the journey getting to Ireland. Um, so children need to be in school as soon as possible. So it's good to hear the Minister of Education to say he, he, he's working on it, but absolutely the Minister has to step in as soon as possible to get those children settled yeah. into well, school. Well, I, I know in that one particular case that we talked about um, with Barry White earlier this week in, in County Monaghan, he hadn't been aware of that particular uh, situation that has to be said. Um, and we had that had been reported to us before and we had raised the, the particular Monaghan situation in, in the Oireachtas as well. We had been getting calls in the Children's Rights Alliance, Viva Helpline. People told us that that was something that they were coming across, that there were families in that, in that area uh, with those kind of, uh, let's say, not, not being linked into local schools. And there, with, with these emergency centres that have been set up, there is a need for the government to make sure there's, there's support workers mm. linking those families into the local schools. And if there is an issue where a local school can't take a child, the Minister of Education needs to step in and provide an alternative. And, and had you, sorry, just to, to clarify, Tanya, did you say that particular issue in Monaghan, you had raised that in your office? We had, yeah, we, we presented to the Justice Committee because it had come up before and we had communicated with the Department of Justice in, in relation to it. So we understood that it, that it was being addressed, but then I heard it again then from, from, from News Talk that it was still coming up as, as, as an issue. And so, when was that? So that would have been in the summer, um, uh, in, in the summer months. So these issues are coming up again and again uh, because of this emergency accommodation situation and the government has actually in the last couple of years there have been more reforms than there ever has been in, in the system. And I'll give you an example, the, the weekly payment that families were getting for their child was, was 960 and in 2014, when I went around the country with the Direct Provision Department of Justice Working Group, I mean, we met children where one, one teenager talked to me about not having money to buy shampoo for herself um, and having to use the soap that the, the centre was providing and, and the condition it was leaving her hair in. And she was walking into school every day, kind of humiliated because, you know, you're a teenager, you, you want to look good. And she just had low self-esteem um, every day. And um, and uh, another mother talked to us about she had to make the choice with the nine. Do I buy a bottle of Calpol or do I send the child to the local hurling club? And is that separate to the thirty-eight euro uh, per adults? Now, yeah. yeah, this is back in the past in in, in twenty fourteen. Okay. What's the new allowance? So, so the new allowance has gone up uh, by, uh, up to twenty nine eighty, and so there were three increases. Um, so that's per child and per child, okay. yeah, and that that's actually very significant change because means you're not putting a parent in a situation where they have to make a choice do I send my child to hurling or do I buy my child Calpol um, you know where a teenager if they need to buy a bottle of shampoo for their hair those little basic things that mean so much to you uh, uh, as a young person they don't have to make those choices Finally Tanya just from maybe very specifically with regards to, to children and children in direct provision mm-hmm. um, certainly from the processing of applications and from an accommodation perspective we 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 heard from Liam Thornton earlier in the program but what would the children's rights alliance like to see um with regards specifically to children in relation to children i think for applications to be processed as, as soon as possible, particularly if they're coming from children themselves as well, because sometimes children make applications in their own right. We've got a, a cohort of young people, unaccompanied uh, minor refugees, separated children that are arriving, that those cases are prioritised as soon as possible and, and are processed. Sometimes TUSA will delay making an application for the child and 
because maybe the process, they don't want to put the child through the process, so there's questions around their application. But it's always better for the child to be processed as soon as possible. And we've met children in adulthood who have been very disappointed that their application wasn't processed um, as a child. In terms of the reforms around direct provision, um, looking at what alternatives are, there's actually very good national standards that the government have developed now to transform the system. So we need to look at what accommodation options, and that might be, I think, the state, the, the government is looking at potentially building accommodation, uh, beside, beside resources, facilities, tran- local transport networks. I think that's that's very welcome. Making sure families have own door accommodation where they can cook for themselves and have a normal family life. But you really want children to be as settled as soon as possible into the local schools and the local youth groups. We know youth groups are playing a huge role in addressing the needs of of refugee children and also helping them make friends Mm. and being part of the local community and giving them the skills they need to get on in life. They're the the solutions for, for children in direct provision. Tanya Ward from the Children's Rights Alliance. My thanks to you for joining us today. Between the Lines on Newstalk. You're welcome back to the final part of News Talks Between the Lines programme with myself, Andrea Gilligan. Today we're discussing the reality of direct provision in Ireland and how the actual asylum-seeking process works in this country. For more on this, we're joined by Nick Henderson, who's the CEO of the Irish Refugee Council. Nick, can you just explain for us, first of all, the impact of the um, the delay, the wait, the actual process itself on people seeking asylum in this country? Thanks for having me. Yeah, sure. Uh, so people would be arriving in Ireland having experienced uh, persecution or fearing persecution in their own country. So they may be arriving with trauma and they have, may have witnessed uh, difficult things or even terrible things on their journey here. Uh, and we've seen on our TV screens what's been going on in the Mediterranean, for example. Uh, when they arrive in Ireland, uh, they'll be looking at the medium waiting time for the asylum procedure is 15 months. So it's very likely you'll be waiting 15 months uh, until a first decision on your asylum claim. And in our experience, uh, that delay, that length of time can have a negative effect on people. Uh, We've worked with people who've arrived in Ireland, um, quite well-functioning people, um, looking forward to contributing into Irish life. But because of the way we design our asylum procedure, they've struggled to do so. Uh, You cannot apply to work until you've waited uh, for nine months. You're likely to be dispersed to either a mainstream direct provision center or one of the emergency centers. And particularly in the emergency centers, you may struggle to access services. And you don't really know how long you'll be waiting for because that 15 months that I've spoken about is until a first decision. But if that's negative, then you would have a right of appeal. Um, So there's a lot of unknown about uh, the asylum procedure and that makes it difficult to advise people uh, in in the work that we do. When somebody has an application rejected um, and they're going through the appeals process, does that mean, Nick, that the asylum system, the asylum process here in Ireland is saying that you you just don't meet the criteria to seek asylum because as we heard from Liam Thornton early in, earlier in the programme today, there's a lot of, um, there's fairly strict criteria about who can apply. Yeah, there's three avenues or suppose, I suppose or, or categories which you are, your case will be considered under refugee, the Refugee Convention, subsidiary protection and permission to remain. Um and if your case doesn't, uh, if, or if the decision maker at the International Protection Office, which is our first instance decision maker, finds that your application doesn't engage one of those three things, then you are you have a right of appeal against the, those decisions. Uh, we would always say that somebody may have made an attempt to engage with the system, um, they, uh, and it shouldn't be used against them, the fact that they haven't been able to engage the law that exists. We often hear of the the phrase failed asylum seeker or economic migrant. We wouldn't use those terms. We would uh, criticize the use of them because it suggests that the individual uh, is is in some way uh, playing the system. Many people uh, have left their country because of the the, fear of uh, ill treatment or persecution, but for various reasons may not be able to or may not have their, their application recognized. Um, One issue that we work on very intensively is early legal advice, which is working very um, closely with somebody at the beginning of the asylum procedure. 
and we believe that helps everybody. It helps the individual, it helps the decision maker uh, as well, because an application is, is put forward in substantive detail at the beginning, and that uh, reduces mistakes and so on. Would it be fair to say that we're, I mean, are we faring out better than other countries? Uh, the asylum procedure may be, um, if you put it, uh, compare them, may be better in Ireland than elsewhere, but we would say that's not a reason for uh, not focusing on on the issues or problems that we have with our own asylum procedure. You often see this in, for example, around homelessness and housing policy. Well, we're, we're, we're not as bad as elsewhere in Europe, so that means we're okay. We would, wouldn't agree with that approach. We're, uh, we're a, a republic. We have a constitution. Uh, we should focus on what, what that protection provides us all. Um, and uh, remember also that we, we really receive a very, very small proportion of the number of people seeking asylum across Ireland. It's, it's something like 0.01%. Uh, it's a tiny proportion of people. Uh, and we believe that uh, that's in a manageable number if we have the procedures in place uh, to look after them. At the moment, we don't. And that's due to, due to 20 years of, um, of, of mismanagement of, of the system um, and a failure to think in a long-term way about how we accommodate people. But let's not, uh, the, you can't compare, um, I would suggest, as I say, we're, we, we have a small number of people seeking asylum here comparatively. Um, critical uh, statutory bodies like the Ombudsman, Ombudsman for Children, the Human Rights Commissioner, have uh, criticized the asylum system here, in particular direct provision. The former special special rapporteur for children, Jeffrey Shannon, said the system uh, it should be abolished. So, you know, I believe we should be focusing on the on the issues that we have here. I do think that we can improve the system. That another system, an alternative direct provision exists, uh, and that should be implemented through a non-profit model. We've spent a huge amount of money on the asylum uh, accommodation through direct provision, but that's primarily gone to private businesses, and that's a big problem in our opinion. Can I ask you about the um, what was one of the reasons that we've been conducting and looking at the reality of this series here on the station throughout the course of the week, Nick, has been due to the fact that there's been so much discussion of late because of the number of protests that have taken place with regards to either asylum seekers being housed in various areas across the country or new developments or facilities opening. We have a decision earlier this week, um, this Friday, that it's now going to be 27 people. So seven families will be housed in Ballinamore and Leitrim. That figure is down from 130 people. And I understand that some of the protesters there or people that were taking part in the protests have welcomed these renewed plans, effectively reducing the number from 130 to 27. What's your reaction to that? I think it's a good thing that this has happened. As I understand it, the accommodation in Ballinamore is actually good. It's quite good. It's maybe um, different from... Uh, other types of accommodation um, that people are being accommodated in. Uh, I know, and we've seen this elsewhere, for example, in Uttarad, that communities have said that the number of people that, that uh, have been proposed would live in the community is, is too many. Um, when we talk about this issue, we often reflect on the fact that over the last 20 years, it's been local communities across Ireland that have welcomed people seeking asylum, despite of the problems uh, associated with direct provision. And Ballinamore uh, now, who will receive people, um, but also places like Uttarad and Nacol, um, could just look down the road where maybe there is an asylum centre, where there is a direct provision centre, and see how the community has engaged with them. Um, there's been all different types of welcome um, delivered by local communities that have really made a difference to people's everyday lives and have improved the situation of people while they live in direct provision. Not changed it fundamentally, but improved the situation. Yeah, It's interesting, though, that there's been, you know, a change or there's certainly now there's a, a welcome for the revised plans, which really just sees, it's not that asylum seekers won't be allowed in Ballon more, it's just that the figure has been reduced from 130 to 27. Is that something that you think maybe, Nick, needs to be looked at in other areas of the country, further engagement with the communities and also perhaps looking at the the numbers that they're talking about? Yeah, in the medium and long term, there needs to be a complete revision of how we engage with the communities. Um, in to, what way? To recognise that 
uh, first of all, we have to establish what type of community and what size of community would be able to accommodate people. Um, there are issues around uh, proximity to Dublin or easy access to Dublin, for example. People in the asylum procedure have to Dublin travel to Dublin quite frequently. Um, so a place like Moville in Inishowen, for example, we criticised that as a proposed place, not because we didn't think there would be a welcome there, we believe there would be because of its di the difficulty in travelling to, to, to Dublin. There also has to be engagement with uh, key actors within the community, for example, GPs, to check that there's a there's GP uh, capacity, uh, to check that there's school capacity, and that can be done in a quite a methodical way, liaising with key actors within within the community. Um, in the short term, though, we are in a situation where we're, and this is in the government's own words, they said after Uttarad that they were precariously close to not being able to accommodate people. This, uh, there's 6,500 people in direct provision, there's something like 1,500 people in emergency accommodation. And we need to accommodate people in, in places. And for example, with ACL, if you said to me a year ago, well, what do you think about accommodating 15 vulnerable women in ACL? I would have said, that's, that's ridiculous. People need, to, need access to, to Dublin, for example, and they need um, help, support around healthcare, for, for example. But we are in a situation where in the government's own words, it's the same. We're, we're close to not being able to accommodate people. So we need to, to sort the current situation and get reduce the number of people in emergency accommodation um, and then start to look at in the long term uh, and the medium term an alternative to the system of direct provision. Do we have a gauge that we use whereby when we look at towns across the country Nick, to decide whether or not they're suitable? No, not, 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 not that I'm aware of. And we've recommended that that exists. Um, and you could bring in planners, for example, uh, to input into that. Um, at the moment, we, we and this is again the government's own words, they're in an emergency situation, um, hence them looking for accommodation in places that they wouldn't in the past have done so, ACL or Mobile, for example. Um, so that needs to be developed, um, and that would be, that would just establish whether um, a community is an appropriate place to be accommodating okay. people and not from the perspective of whether there would be a welcome there. We believe that there would be and that's, as I say, based on our 20-year experience um, and also the experience that when there's face-to-face -face contact, stereotypes tend to melt away, but more from the perspective of whether there are the services uh, there in the community for, for both people seeking asylum but also the local community. OK, we'll leave it there. Nick Henderson, CEO of the Irish Refugee Council. My thanks to you for joining us on the programme today. I'm afraid that's all we have time for. If you've missed any of the programme, you can listen back on our website at newstalk.com or on the Go Light app. My thanks to the production team, Simon Keane and Stephen Jordan. I'll be back again with Breakfast Briefing on Monday morning at six and with Between the Lines this time next week. But for me, Andrea Gilligan, have a good day. 